Hello, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers Festival. I hope you enjoy this conversation from our podcast series. Good afternoon, everyone here at Carriage Works and everyone in their libraries with our live and local audience. We're very happy to have you all here. I'm Susan Wyndham, a journalist and writer, and I'm honoured to be introducing the speakers who will pay tribute to some of the late great writers of the past year. I promise you a wonderful hour of shared memories and celebration with Jackie Huggins, Melissa Lukashenko, Sarah Krasnerstein and Clem Bastow. It's particularly important that we begin today by acknowledging the traditional custodians and storytellers of the land we meet on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay our respects to elders past and to those present and emerging. It's always astonishing to look back on the roll call of public figures in the arts who have died in any year, whether it's actors and filmmakers, singers and musicians, artists or writers, all stars who have lit our lives and at the time seemed immortal. When those lights go out, <laughs> we wonder how can the world go on without them? Perhaps the past 12 or 24 months, we've rightly been more focused on mourning the deaths of too many people from COVID-19, war, floods, fires, and other tragedies. And I'm sure many of us have had personal losses, each one important. But today, we remember and thank the writers who've enriched us with ideas, inspiration, provocation, and entertainment. And of course, although they are gone, the gifts of their words, their books, their stories, their songs, their influence stay with us. Just to remember a few of those names, Australians Kate Jennings, John Bryson, Geordie Alberston, Valerie Parve, Craig McGregor, Eddie Jacku, and international writers Janet Malcolm, Anne Rice, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, Larry McMurtry, PJ O'Rourke, Jack Higgins, Roberto Colasso, Eric Carl, Beverly Cleary, and the four we will hear more about, Bell Hooks, Kerry Hume, Joan Didion, and Stephen Sondheim. Our first speaker is Jackie Huggins, a member of the Bijara and Birigabajuru peoples, an esteemed historian and, uh, and advocate for the rights of Indigenous Australians, currently leading the work on future treaties in Queensland. She has written biographies of her mother, Auntie Rita, and of her father, Jack of Hearts, QX11594, co-authored with her sister and published last month. Also out recently, she has an updated edition of her 1998 collection, Sister Girl, Reflections on Titaism, Identity and Reconciliation. Jackie will speak about Bell Hooks, the black American intellectual activist and author of books including Ain't I a Woman, Black Women and Feminism, who died in December, aged 69. Jackie Huggins. Thank you. What a bully. I was first introduced to Bell Hooks in the 80s, when I was at university, studying history and women's studies. And that really confirmed the power and insight this woman gave me. I knew I was finally hooked on hooks after reading her books. <laughs> that wasn't meant to rhyme, but it, it did, didn't it? And how I just wanted to be like her. She became my inspiration. Her writings on race, feminism and class are to be believed. They were way ahead of their time and stand the test of time. No black woman was doing any kind of that theoretical thinking and writing I craved in those days. No one wrote those words to enable my soul searchings for explanations, concepts, vocabulary and voice. 
until I found Belle and her book, Ain't I a Woman? This was published on the 1st of December, 1983. She had published over 30 books which informed my scholarship and thinking when I did women's studies all those years ago. Audrey Lord was another strong black writer I adored. The master's tools will never dismantle the master's house is my favourite quote. I had to look overseas for my inspirations, apart from Ruby Langford Guinnaby. Sadly, there were no other role models for me who could speak to me in those days. But now, I'm glad to say, there are fabulous black women and men writers who speak to me these days. To mention, uh, too many to mention, of course, but you know who you all are. I want to acknowledge too in the audience, Marcia Langton, uh, another fellow public intellectual and street fighter, which was the best compliment I'd ever received in the 80s. <laughs> so always remember that one. And Marcia is one of those women and continues today. Gloria Jean Watkins, Acker Bell Hooks, was born in 1952. Her name is borrowed from her maternal great-grandmother, Belle Blair Hooks, and Belle did not use capital letters in her name. She was just four years older than me, but I thought her wisdom and her writing felt much more ancient than that. I just want to play you a clip, a quick clip. When I first learned about Australian Aborigines as a girl, I learned about them from Mills and Boone to Romances. It says a lot about how much we've changed that I can actually be talking to Jackie as two women of consciousness, two black revolutionary women, that I think we have to also look at how far we've come, even as we acknowledge how far we have to go, because that's where the hope lies. I mean, for me, yes. it's exciting. This moment tonight is exciting because it's a moment of solidarity. I mean, I've been telling everybody that I was going to have this conversation with Jackie and because it meant so much to me as a sign of black self-determination. Mm. Absolutely, I, I agree with that, Bill. And as a, I've told you this before, a great fan of yours from way back, I think that the, your writings and the stuff you have to say about feminism and racism is so important to all black women in this world. And believe me, I'm, I'm as excited about this as you are. Thank you. So never in a million years did I think I would meet my mentor in London in 1996, a year after the coming out show, ABC. The producer, who happens to be here tonight, Nicola Joseph gave me that great opportunity. I salute you, sister, wherever you are in the audience. Take a bow, take a bow. And Nicola could see the work I was doing solely by myself in attempting to define Aboriginal women's position on feminism, or as I call it, titterism, um, was so real and it had to be shown. So once again, thank you, Nicola, I'm indebted to you. I was visiting then with my then 11-year-old son, who incidentally is now 37. Um, when I became, I came across a notice at a library indicating Bell Hooks was doing a talk that night. Quickly arranging a babysitter, I excitedly wandered, wandered along like a little teenager. I walked in and there she was, surrounded by her adoring groupies. She looked at me and I could see the expression that indicated, this one looks strangely exotic and does not come from here. What race is she? After her talk, I walked up and introduced myself. She was surprised and said to come by her place tomorrow. Fancy having a personal invitation like that, I thought. Obtaining a time and address, I scurried home and could not sleep that night. 
Next day, I saddled up to the hotel where she was staying with her sister, sat down to a glass of water and began to chat. It was like being with my black queen. <laughs> then a knock at the door immediately came one hour after. She had scheduled appointments on the hour, every hour, with everybody. And I was so devastated as I thought I was the only one. <laughs> no dinner that night with Belle, but fond memories. Despite this, I invited her to Australia. She was afraid of flying and said uh, she would come only if two business class airfares for her and her sister could be arranged. She needed company to go, in, to go on international flights because of her great fear of flying. Not a problem, I thought, and I was confident I could arrange that small gesture. After all, she was bell hooks, an icon and a treasure. I approached some white feminists in South Australia, where I studied at Flinders University in those days, and they flatly refused, indicating it would be far too expensive for the two business airfares, let alone the speaking fee. My heart sank and we missed that golden opportunity. I did speak to her on the phone to say no deal and I cried with disappointment. How could this happen? In hindsight, I could have tried harder, but I thought I could trust these women to provide some, some funds for her travel. When Belle went to be with her ancestors on December 15, 2021, she left a huge legacy and I feel a loss so profound. I received many condolences as if she was a member of my own family. And in fact, she was. That beloved genius of word, thought, analysis has gone physically but her dream and teachings live on in her work and her books and those who read them, study them and action them. She'll always be in my heart, a woman of immense compassion and love. Let's hear it from Belle and she will have the last say tonight from me. No black woman writer in this culture can write too much, and no woman has ever written enough. Thank you. Thank you, Jackie. Melissa Lukashenko is the acclaimed author of six novels which draw on her Bundjalung and European heritage. From her first novel, Steam Pigs, in 1997, she has written about ordinary but larger-than-life characters with empathy, irreverence, anger and humour. Melissa has been a leader in bringing First Nations stories to the forefront of Australian literature, and her most recent novel, Too Much Lip, won the 2019 Miles Franklin Literary Award. She will speak about Kerry Hume, the New Zealand author, best known for her novel, The Bone People, which won the Booker Prize in 1985. Carrie Hume died in December, aged 74. Melissa. Thank you. I'd just like to say, Jackie, that your um, collection, Sister Girl, did for me what Bell Hook's work did for you and gave me a path forward, so thank you. This is from Kerry Hume's poetry collection, Strands. I am not a person to say the words out loud. I think them strongly or let them hunger from the page. Know it there from my silence, from somewhere other than my tongue, the quiet love, 
the silent rage. Jackie's uh, talking about bell hooks reminded me of uh, the novelist Zora Neale Hurston, who was famously rescued from obscurity by Alice Walker. Hurston was a working class black American writer born in 1893 within very clear and living memory of slavery. She wrote about Southern black lives in a Creole that is uh, very difficult for Australians to understand, but she included queer and cross-racial love in her work, and she was almost entirely forgotten when Alice Walker went looking for her grave in 1973, and to her outrage found it untended and ignored. Walker subsequently had a headstone put up at her own expense for Hurston and had it carved on it the wonderful inscription, Zora Neale Hurston, a genius of the South. Now, I'm pretty sure, I'm quite sure, that Māori novelist and poet and short story writer Kerry Hume was put to rest with appropriate ceremony. I'd lay money that she's well remembered in Aotearoa and particularly in her homeland, on the hometown on the South Island. Despite this, I find myself seized at times with a ridiculous impulse to go to her resting place and stand there proclaiming her brilliance to the world. A great Totara tree has fallen, I would say, and attention must be paid to such a woman. But such interference on my part is unnecessary as well as entirely uncalled for, since in 1985 her strange and wonderful novel The Bone People won the Booker Prize, and she'll be remembered by hundreds of thousands of readers around the world. Bernadine Everista, chair of the Book of Judges that year, said that the novel was an outsider story told by an outsider writer in an outsider way, and went on to add that Hume was singled out for attack after winning because she and her odd Indigenous novel didn't fit in with the literary club of the establishment. Joanna Lumley who I've developed a deep and sincere hatred for since discovering this, said that you can't award the booker to a novel like this with subject matter so dark. A British journalist who doesn't deserve to be named wrote, as though to underline Everista's point, that Hume's prize was claimed at the London ceremony, and I quote, not by the author who was away lecturing in America, but by a posse of keening harpies said to be members of the feminist collective who had helped her with the book. One of these so-called keening harpies was Marion Evans, the Bone People's publisher, who was working in a women's shelter um, when she re received the man manuscript. She was exhausted from work but said she couldn't sleep all that night and just stayed up dropping the loose leaves of the manuscript over the side of her bed as she read through it in one hit. Before the Spiral Collective decided to publish Hume, several other publishers had already rejected it, including, hilariously, a feminist publisher who said it wasn't feminist enough. <laughs> so there were plenty of people unwilling or unable to hear what Kerry Hume was saying, plenty of people quick to dismiss her work as too strange, too Māori, or simply not good enough. I guess the joke's on them. The first print run sold out in New Zealand within three days. Professor Paula Morris, an uh, eminent New Zealand scholar who is Māori herself, wrote of the book that, for Māori writers then and now, Hume's win was a transformative moment when a Māori book that was impressionistic, complex and often visceral was recognised as a great work of art. It was certainly visceral for me. And what writer wouldn't dream of having their work described that way or of selling out their first print run in three days, of winning the biggest English language prize in the world? But fame and success threw Hume, more than most writers, into a spotlight she didn't welcome and couldn't reconcile herself to. She went off whitebait fishing rather than join the circuit of writers' festivals and self-promotion. 
She published several brilliant collections of poems and, sh and short stories after the Bone People, but never, to my knowledge, wrote another novel. She was an eccentric, a creature of solitude who treasured her privacy and guarded it in many different ways. If we accept that The Bone People is a highly autobiographical novel, Hume could possibly be said to be a self-described neuter with little interest in romantic or sexual relationships. She writes about her doppelganger, Carolyn, in the book as someone of indeterminate gender, indeterminate race. Her proposal in The Bone People for a universal gender-neutral pronoun, they, with a V, was, as we know now, decades ahead of its time. And yet this outsider, this disoriented soul, was also devoted to her family and community, and of course to the country that she worshipped. O land, you're the heart and bone of me, O sea, you're my blood. I first read The Bone People at 22, a very good age, to read a powerful novel, and I kept rereading it for decades until I put it away because I was frightened that I was subconsciously plagiarising entire sentences in my own work. And I still don't know if I did or not. <laughs> the fierce intelligence of the main character held me spellbound. Here was a Māori protagonist, fully fleshed, complicated, exiled and damaged, but also in the end redeemed and capable of love. This book shaped me and my writing far more than any other. To me, Hume was a godlike figure. And when I realised that she was going to appear at the very first writers' festival I was ever invited to, I nearly died. <laughs> I was living in Tonga in 1997 when the Festival of the Dreaming flew me to Sydney to appear alongside Anita Heiss, I think Alexis Wright, and a hotel full of other First Nation authors. Somehow, I don't remember how, I wangled Hume's room number out of the reception. <laughs> and I wrote her a note going into detail about my activism in Brisbane, the recent setting up of Sisters Inside and how I was living in the Pacific. I was Aboriginal and newly published. Could we have a coffee, I asked in the note and slid it under the door with my phone number on it. I waited. <laughs> no phone call. Nothing. And nothing the following day either. I wasn't surprised since Hume was well known to be a hermit, allergic to even well-paying strangers and not at all interested in being disturbed by fans. She'd rather be out with a white bait net. But I was young enough and stupid enough not to take the hint. And so on the morning of the third day, not to sound too biblical, I went back up to her door and took a deep breath and knocked. The sound that roared from the other side of the door was a sonic blast of pure outrage. It reminded me of those original trolls, you know, the trolls in the fairy tales go, who goes there? <laughs> who was it? Ooh, nobody much, just me, a complete newbie in the world of books. I've been published for all of three weeks. <laughs> But luckily I was a black belt in karate and I had been yelled at as well as punched and kicked at in the dojo for many years. Instantly, just on instinct, I shouted back, matching her volume, Melissa Lukashenko! <laughs> the door opened. There stood my idol, dressed in shapeless cotton with her messy salt and pepper hair spiralling in all directions. I'd clearly interrupted her writing. My heart sank and I realised what an idiot I'd been to imagine disturbing this woman at work on her next world-shattering book. She narrowed her eyes at me. You left me that note, she accused. <laughs> yes. Oh, well, you better come in. Do you want a beer? <laughs> <laughs> and that is how I remember Kerry Hume, genius of the South. <laughs> I want to know what happened next. <laughs> we got drunk. <laughs> and she remembers no more. <laughs> Thank you, Melissa. American-born Sarah Krasnerstein has a PhD in criminal law and was a law lecturer and researcher before turning her curiosity and humanity to writing. 
She arrived with a bang on the Australian literary scene in 2017 with her first non-fiction book, The Trauma Cleaner, One Woman's Extraordinary Life in, Lo in Death, Decay and Disaster, which won numerous awards, including the Victorian Prize for Literature. Her second book, The Believer, Encounters with Love, Death and Faith, was published last year. And there's much more writing you can read by Sarah, including a, um, a, 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 a essay. <laughs> What's it called? Uh, yeah, anyway, her essays and her journalism, which are always wonderful to read. She's going to speak today about Joan Didion, the American essayist and author who inspired generations of writers with books from Slouching Towards Bethlehem and The White Album to The Year of Magical Thinking. Joan Didion died in December, aged 87. Thank you, Sarah. No one wrote a sentence like Joan Didion, who died last year in New York City on the eve of Christmas Eve at the age of 87, and who once said that she slept in the same room as the draft she was working on. Somehow, she explained to the Paris Review, the book doesn't leave you when you're right next to it. I see her with the eye of memory doubly. And when I remember her sitting at the next table in another country in another decade, a part of me is instantly there again, even now as I tell you this. These are the words the obituaries used to describe her writing style, and thus her character, as she would have it. Mordant, mantra-like, mannered, tough, terse, cool, apprehensive, qualities deemed so masculine that they are barely ever ascribed to men. Didion wrote about music and movies and Hollywood. She wrote about crime and culture and counterculture, about domestic and international politics, which at their hot human hearts all share the same archetypal themes, power, belonging, bravery, and their opposites. Didion wrote fiction, nonfiction, screenplays. She was dexterous and devastating. Didion first wrote herself into being with her finely observed searching features in Life magazine and the Saturday Evening Post, those pillars of the mid-century American self-concept. It is ironic then, and she would have known this of course, that her pieces held up various corners of that nation's increasingly delusional sense of itself. Her first novel, Run River, was published in 1963. More fiction would follow, play it as it lays, a book of common prayer, democracy, the last thing he wanted. However, she is best known or loved for the incendiary immortal nonfiction collections which bookended the decade in which the American center could not hold. Slouching Towards, Be Slouching Towards Bethlehem, 1968, and The White Album, 1969. And for her nonfiction, both collected and book length, which rose up and ran like a mountain system. Salvador, Miami, After Henry, Political Fictions, Where I Was From, The Year of Magical Thinking, Blue Nights. Didion was most at home at home. She bestrode the physical and emotional landscape of her native California like a colossus, like a gold miner. The interiority of the terrain she found there made her the opposite of the frontier forebears who couldn't bear to stop to think about what it meant and what it took to push into remote territory. That unflinching two-way gaze, seeing the world for what it was and for what it signified above all else to herself, is Didion's signature. And it lands again and again unburdened by that poison, the need to be liked. Or perhaps she was just more selective than women are taught we have a right to be and whom she considered to be her, her moral judges. There's a quality in literature that Max Sebold identified as lightness, by which he meant not that the narrator is carefree or lighthearted, but instead of talking about his burdens, he turns to his senses in order to produce something that could help him and his reader, who may be in need of comfort, to resist the temptation of melancholy. Janet Malcolm and Toni Morrison and Helen Garner, who all occupy thrones in the same pantheon as Didion, have this quality of lightness in their writing at times, though not frequently, because of their subject matter and their inward call to write it. Didion, however, had none, not little, 
but none. It's less that her landscapes are, in the end, self-portraits, because if anything, that was her key to the longer view. It's more that there is something in the retreat up and into the cerebellum, something in the shades worn perpetually over the patrolling eyes that makes me mourn her, I admit it, as Alfieri says at the end of a view from the bridge, with a certain alarm. Two versions of the one time I saw Joan Didion. Both are true. Both have everything and nothing to do with Joan Didion. First, the lesser story, the codependent, people-pleasing story. The as I would have written it if I had not been fully myself because Didion had not been fully herself story. I forget what movie we saw, Nikki and I, but when we left the theater on that weekday night, it was cold and it was near midnight and hardly anything was open in the village except for that old cafe near West 4th Street with the enormous old-school coffee machine, sleek as a jaguar. We've known each other since we were seven, Nikki and I, and it was nice to be together again, even in a harsh pool of fluoro light in an almost empty cafe. This is before I had kids, before I had shown anyone my creative work, and I had nowhere in particular to be. An elderly woman at the table next to us caught my eye because we three were the only customers. But what held my gaze was the thick pile of printed pages on the white formica of the table in front of her, the pen in her pale hand, her eyes engaged so busily that any tension had vacated the rest of her features. What monstrous work could this be to draw a woman so frail from her home and into the night to do it in the company of strangers? Only after the waiter brought her order over did she stop and tilt the planes of her face upward enough for it to be immediately recognizable to me. Joan Didion, right there at midnight. Maybe that's just what real writers did. Next, the story which sums up all I have to actually tell you as Didion instructed about what I saw and the meaning of the picture it left burnt in my mind. Even in public, especially in public, the mind is drawn to the domestic details, or perhaps more accurately, the lack of them. I forget what movie we saw, Nikki and I, but when we left the theater, it was chilly, and it was near midnight, and hardly anything was open in the village because it is only in songs that New York is the city that never sleeps. <laughs> but one brightness in the darkness draped over every place where one might seek to safely rest an eye was the cafe whose name I've now forgotten, though I remember many things I do not wish to. It was empty except for one other customer and a waiter and the enormous espresso machine of an era that is not so much bygone as passed by by those who need to pretend that there is a place called the past. I glanced over at the other customer and my first impression was of a thick pile of printed pages and of the hand which held a pen. The skin of this hand was so pale it seemed transparent so aged and thinly draped over prominent bones, it would have given the impression of frailty unless you focused on the pen locked in its grasp and the speed with which it was moving across the page. The hand paused when she looked with some dismay up at a plate of cantaloupe that the waiter had brought over. Words were exchanged. The young man disappeared briefly and materialized again minutes later the slice of orange melon had been cut into small cubes. And all the while I am thinking, how could this person who was simultaneously so old and so young possibly be Joan Didion? And why with a pen so fine, a sleek and shiny jaguar of a pen, a diamond of a pen, was she working here of all places and times? That was a decade ago which means that I did not yet intimately know what proof pages look like. It means that her pile of them was likely the manuscript for Blue Nights, her devastating memoir of her daughter Quintana's death at the age of 39, and of parenthood, and of aging. It means that she was the last person breathing in the family she had created. It means that this was not yet my own biggest fear, that I was not yet in need of the knowledge that when things fall apart and the center cannot hold, there are always places where the fluoro lights never go out and the words remain just where you left them because that's just what real writers do.
Thank you, Sarah. My goodness. Well, they've been really beautiful tributes, and we've got one more with a little surprise. <laughs> Clem Bastow is an award-winning journalist and cultural critic who is well known for her strong opinions and witty writing. She teaches screenwriting at the University of Melbourne and is working on a PhD exploring the intersections of autism, screenwriting and action cinema. Clem recently published her first book, Late Bloomer, a memoir about her life-changing diagnosis with autism at the age of 36. Clem will finish this brilliant evening with a tribute to Stephen Sondheim, the, the composer and lyricist who reinvented the American musical with a prolific output that began with lyrics for West Side Story and went on to Sweeney Todd, Company, A Little Night Music, Into the Woods and many, many others. Stephen Sondheim died in November at the age of 91. Thanks, Clem. Hold tight, more strong opinions to follow. <laughs> Once upon a time, on an afternoon in 1991, my family gathered around the television. We'd been alerted by my sister Blazy to the airing of American Playhouse's recording of Into the Woods, a musical by someone called Stephen Sondheim. Across those two hours and 31 minutes, I experienced something akin to a paradigm shift. A musical, it was now clear to me, could be more than just pretty melodies and glittering costumes. It could be erudite, scary, thrilling, as funny as Blackadder and as moving as National Velvet, such are the high watermarks of the nine-year-old's artistic pantheon. <laughs> Sondheim is, for the uninitiated, very much unlike other musical theatre composer lyricists. His work, at its best, which is more often than not, offers a near psychoanalytical insight into the human condition. His songbook is about the complexities of art, politics, sex, being alive. He was a titan of musical theatre. His work is more complex than Rodgers and Hammerstein, wittier than Betty Comden and Adolph Green, more existentially challenging than Jonathan Larson, and simply better than Andrew Lloyd Webber in every conceivable way. <laughs> Nobody balanced music and lyrics like he did. Every line was like a play, every sentence perfectly structured. He was also his own harshest critic. Who else would consider the lyrics to West Side Story, his first big job, to be weak? Here's the surprise. Today the world was just an address, a place for me to live in, no better than all right. But here you are, and what was just a world is a star tonight. None of this mattered to nine-year-old me, of course. <laughs> All I knew that was I suddenly, ha I suddenly had a new hero, and he was a bearded, gay, Jewish musical theatre composer-lyricist from New York. <laughs> this wasn't the brightest choice in a playground where most people had chosen their heroes from a smorgasbord of Diesel, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, or the cast of Beverly Hills 90210. <laughs> For the record, I was also obsessed with the former too. I wasn't allowed to watch Beverly Hills 90210 because it was too racy. Musical sex comedies set in 1970s Manhattan, on the other hand, were A-OK. -okay. <laughs> to give you greater context, I'd been doomed from the outset of my educational career at Middle Park Primary School. Imagine, if you will, the utter tragedy of a nine-year-old in an extra-large The King and I t-shirt, maroon cotton stirrup pants, push-down socks and jelly sandals striding towards certain social death in a quadrangle full of children who probably learned to pronounce the words LA gear and billabong surfwear shortly after birth. <laughs> to paraphrase Jane Austen, what are Melrose Place and smash hits compilations to Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street and Sunday in the Park with George? This position did not brook me much schoolyard cachet. I once attempted to introduce assassins to some cooler, older kids by shrugging, it's got swearing in it. <laughs> Learning Sondheim's catalogue by heart was at first an act of musical perseveration, but his lyrics soon became my echolalic tenets. He was, as Mandy Patinkin offered in memoriam, simply one of our greatest teachers. Some have favourite novelists or poets whose work taught them about life. I learned most of what I know from Sondheim's songbook. It's true that this may not have laid the best foundation for my ability to carry out a healthy relationship. <laughs> what with lyrics like, I am 
nothing. You are wind and devil and God. Charlie, take my blood and my body for your love. Let me feel fire, let me drink poison, tell me to tear my heart in two. If that's what you want me to do. So that's Lynette Squeaky Frome in Assassins singing to her one true love, the incarcerated Charles Manson. <laughs> or how about this? Go, can't you go? Why is nobody listening? Goodbye, go and cry at another person's wake. If you're quick for a kick, you could pick up a christening. But please, on my knees, there's a human life at stake. Listen, everybody, look, I'm, I'm afraid you didn't hear or do you want to see a crazy lady fall apart in front of you? It is only Paul who could be ruining his life. You know, we both of us be losing our identities. I telephoned my analyst about it and he said to call him Monday, but my mother be floating in the Hudson with the other garbage. I'm not well and I'm not getting married. You've been swell, but I'm not getting married. Clear the hall, but I'm not getting married. Thank you all, but I'm not getting getting married and don't tell Paul but I'm not getting married today that's Amy from company I don't want to do Sondheimer dirty though he was perfectly capable of writing a delightful love song life is slow but it seems exciting cause buddy's there gourmet cooking and letter writing and knowing buddy's there every morning don't faint, I tend the flowers. Can you believe it? Every weekend I paint for umpteen hours. And yes, I miss a lot living like a shut-in. No, I haven't got cooks and cars and diamonds. Yes, my clothes are not Paris fashions, but in Buddy's eyes. I'm young, I'm beautiful, in body's eyes. I don't get older, so life is ducky and time goes flying. And I'm so lucky, I feel like crying. That's Sally in Follies, singing about her husband Buddy to Ben, the man she's about to have an affair with. <laughs> But there was something deeper at play for that then undiagnosed autistic child in the emotional ambivalence and lyrical dazzlement of songs like Moments in the Woods and No More, I felt somehow recognised. It was okay if I felt bewildered by the world around me because Sondheim's characters did, often did too. I quickly set about consuming every skerrick of Sondheim's work that I could get my hands on. In 1991, there was every chance that a teacher or guardian would have had to look very closely to notice any divergence in my behaviour, because this was when I began putting nearly all my energy into appearing normal, masking my autistic behaviours. This campaign had, shall we say, mixed results. At home, I'd begun repeating everything I'd just said under my breath. This is known as palilalia. The only respite from my own echo was, somewhat ironically, echolalia. I could quote my favourite movies and repeat jokes from TV without so much as a verbal stumble. The process of creating original and normal speech patterns out of thin air, on the other hand, was such a high-wire act it required preparation and review. The esteemed British neurologist Macdonald Critchley, in his 1927 paper on palilalia, wrote, A point of great interest and importance lies in the fact that the palilalia disappears during preformed speech automatisms, as, for instance, when the patient reads aloud, sings or recites. It was very difficult for me to engage in conversation with another person, yet I could reel off the lyrics, complete with correct rhythm and intonation, to On the Steps of the Palace with great gusto. You think, what do you want? You think, make a decision. Why not stay and be caught? You think, well, it's a thought. What would be his response? But then what if he knew who you were when you know that you're not what he thinks that he wants? And then what if you are what a prince would envision? Although how can you know who you are till you know what you want, which you don't? So then which do you pick? Where you're safe out of sight and yourself, but where everything's wrong? Or where everything's right and you know that you'll never belong? And whichever you pick, do it quick, because you're starting to stick to the steps of the palace. That's Cinderella stuck on the stairs <laughs> and into the woods. Between 9am and 3.30pm, all my energy went into appearing as normal as possible. 
The tragedy of this is that, of course, I did an absolutely hopeless job of it. No matter how casually I introduced the topic of conversation, my special interests would always reveal me as a complete outsider. <laughs> now, I'm prepared to believe that there is a generation of young kids raised on Glee and High School Musical for whom the act of loving musical theatre is not social suicide, but this was not the case in the early 90s. And though I had long been interested in musicals, when Blasey gifted me the original Broadway cast recording of Into the Woods, dinosaurs, hitherto my primary special interest, were summarily shown the door. Everything I understood about the world was shattered. Sondheim's verbose lyrics and his knack for syncopated rhythms were intoxicating to me. Singing along with his shows was its own form of stimming. In Sondheim's music and lyrics, I had found a trusted friend and confidant, a harmonist to harmonise with. There was something irresistible in the rhythms and dazzling word puzzles of his lyrics that set synapses alight in my brain. In the immediate aftermath of Sondheim's death, I was delighted anew by A Little Night Music's Later. This is a men's song, sorry in advance, if I don't hit it. As I've often stated, it's intolerable being tolerated. Reassure Henrik, poor Henrik, Henrik, you'll endure being pure Henrik. Though I've been born, I've never been. How can I wait around for later? I'll be 90 on my deathbed and the later, rather later, Henrik Agerman. Or from Into the Woods, Cinderella's and Rapunzel's jeweling princes. Am I not sensitive, clever, well-mannered, considerate, passionate, charming, as kind as I'm handsome and heir to a throne? You are everything maidens could wish for. Then why no, do I know, the girl must be mad. <laughs> Once I had exhausted the entire Sondheim catalogue, the only thing that would give my autistic brain the same delight in syncopation, rhythm and harmony was rap. I hope that Stephen Sondheim and MF Doom are enjoying delicious rap snitch knishes in heaven together as we speak. <laughs> Though my 11-year-old attempt to sing Companies Being Alive at the School Talent Quest was squashed in favour of the more age-appropriate getting to know you from the king and I, <laughs> Sondheim remained a daily part of my life for the ensuing three decades, ensuing. I suspect it would have embarrassed him, even as he delighted in quiz shows, to hear that I once went on the Einstein factor with his life and work as my topic. And in a positively Sondheimian result, I came second to a Sherlock Holmes expert. <laughs> Reading for what must be the 47th time, biographer Martin Gottfried's Sondheim, I'm drawn once again to his assessment of Sondheim's character. He seems afraid only of the cliched, the banal, the careless and the unintelligent, Gottfried wrote of Sondheim. He is in this way a hero. I lived my life in fear of the same things, not always successfully, in the case of my own work, as fealty to his mighty influence upon me. Having been introduced to his work at such a formative age led to bafflement at Sondheim's undue reputation as a tetchy, unhummable show-off, kind of like me. At 23, I brought another 100 people from 1970s company to a BYO sheet music sing-along at the Arts Centre's Café Vic. It's a city of strangers, some come to work, some to play. A city of strangers, some come to stare, some to stay. And every day, the ones who stay can find each other in the crowded streets and the guarded parks, by the rusty fountains and the trust dusty trees with the battered box. And they walk together past the postered walls with the crude remarks. And they meet at parties through the friends of friends who they never know. Do you pick me up or should I meet you there? Shall we let it go? Did you get my message? Cause I looked in vain. Can we see each other Tuesday if it doesn't rain? Look, I'll call you in the morning or my service will explain. And another hundred people just got off of the train. <laughs> I was somewhere around by the rusty fountains and the dusty trees with the battered barks when the accompanist gave up in a huff, pulled the sheet music from the stave and moved on to more crowd-pleasing fare. <laughs> Later, I wandered back to my tram in a daze and I cried the whole way home. There's a breathtaking moment in Greta Gerwig's Ladyburg when Father Leviach says of the school's coolly received performance of Sondheim's Merrily We Roll Along to nobody in particular, they didn't understand it. When the news arrived last year, it came from my dear friend Alex, a fellow Sondheim nut. As soon as I saw the message, Clem, I'm sorry, I have terrible news, I knew we'd lost him. I'd been burnt by the letdown of receiving a Xeroxed autograph from the office of Steven Spielberg at the tender age of 12. 
Gottfried's anecdote about Sondheim's 1964 letter upbraiding the young critic's praise for Lauren's heart was rarely far from my mind, so I never wrote to Sondheim to tell him what his work meant to me. As countless stories shared in the aftermath of his death have demonstrated to the contrary, he was in fact a generous and committed letter replier, except when someone made an unreasonable request. As one reply from Mr Sondheim read in full, Dear John, no, you may not mash up Send in the Clowns with Baby Shark for panto season. Yours truly, Stephen Sondheim. There was a part of me that genuinely believed with trademark autistic magical thinking when I first travelled to New York at the not-so-tender age of 28 that I might just bump into him somewhere and be able to tell him in person that nobody, no teacher, mentor, friend or enemy, has made a bigger impact on my life than Stephen Sondheim. It didn't happen, so I'll tell him now, and I hope that somewhere he hears it. I wish. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> A standing ovation from me. Thanks, Clem, and for all of you. <laughs> well, that's the end of this wonderful event even better than I'd hoped. And uh, I think it shows how behind every writer we read is uh, lines of writers that go before them who they've read and absorbed. And um, it just shows the richness of literature. And I hope that this event will inspire you to go and read some of the writers that have been talked about and so that we keep them alive. And also the writers who have spoken to us today. And as I said before, you can meet them all in the um, bookshop, buy their books and get them signed and have another chat to them. Thank you all very much for coming. And thank you to Melissa Lukashenko, Jackie Huggins, Clem Basto and Sarah Krasnostein. Thank you all very much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.